and welcome to episode 387 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news, and ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com. This show is going to air on Monday, January 30th. That means that uh, two days from now, Wednesday, February 1st, is the score release date for the January LSAT. We would love it if you tell us how you did. You can do that at thinkinglsat.com. Dot com. We got an email here from Amy about chat GPT. You must okay. be loving this, Ben. You've been looking at chat GPT. I've still been unable to get onto it ever. I signed up for their alerts, like email me if chat GPT is available. Oh, really? I, hmm. I have gotten no such alerts. And every time I've tried, <laughs> it said no, no. Yeah, we run into that a lot, but my kids are constantly trying to get on there to do their homework. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but that's, yeah, that's where they're going. Uh, I think they use it as a tool, hopefully. But in any case, hi, Ben and Nathan. I just finished watching the CBS Sunday morning segment on chat GPT. Of the professions predicted to be greatly affected by this artificial intelligence, lawyers were first the first ones mentioned. Uh, that's not surprising to me at all. I mean, the law- lawyers are doing a lot of writing. And so it would be foolish for you to be an attorney and not leverage this kind of tool as it gets better and better, right? Save all that time drafting and let chat GPT do it. And then you can tweak it. I would love your thoughts on the accuracy of this statement. Do you think lawyers will be affected by this artificial intelligence? If so, how? Why do you think it's a potential positive or negative development for the legal field? Plagiarism aside, how might it affect law students? Many thanks. Amy, I have been thinking about ChatGPT for a little bit recently, and I would say that it's definitely going to replace a lot of writing work that was done before, but I don't think that the final write-off, sign-off will probably ever go away. I think you're going to need some attorney to say, okay, yeah, I like what this is saying here, or no, we're going to tweak this, we're going to go in a different direction. But the idea that this won't be used as, as a tool is ridiculous. It would be foolish. And therefore, anyone who's doing that initial draft work, yeah, they might lose their jobs. But if that's just the attorneys doing the draft work, then all that's going to happen is they are going to become more efficient, which would then mean you need fewer attorneys because they can do more work in the same amount of time. I haven't yet been able to play with ChatGPT, but I definitely think people, if you're curious at all, you should go try to check it out. You and every other person on the planet should go, I mean, is right now apparently trying to to ch- <laughs> trying to use their website. Um to see what it can do. The only things that I've seen, like the only actual work product that I've seen of ChatGPT, because I've never had a chance to ask it any questions of my own, are um, <laughs> I noticed that on the page, there's like a landing page that is telling you that ChatGPT is unavailable. And they have clearly used ChatGPT to write the messages to you, telling you that it's unavailable. Yeah. Um, what was the thing I sent to you? Did I email it to you? Or yeah, I think that, or you texted it to me, it was saying something like, first of all, you saw the instruction that was given to chat GPT, which was explaining oh, I've got our status. Okay. I've go got for it. it. Okay. So they told 
ChatGPT to write a guided meditation about the status of ChatGPT, mm-hmm. which is they've they cut it off. They cut the po- human populace off, you know, or whatever. They're limiting the access to it because it's crashing. Right. But yeah. they still have access to it, obviously. So they asked their own AI to write a guided meditation about the status of ChatGPT. And this is what it said. As you read this message, please take a moment to pause and breathe. Notice the sensations in your body and the rhythm (laughs) of your breath. Remind yourself that you are not alone in wanting to try out ChatGPT. Many others are interested in it as well. Be patient and know that the website is doing its best to accommodate everyone. Trust that the right time will come for you to try ChatGPT. Sorry, trust that the right time for you to try ChatGPT will come. That's what I said. In the meantime, continue to focus on your breath and stay present in the moment. That was the guided (laughs) meditation that ChatGPT wrote about its own status. Eric here looks like he was able to ask ChatGPT, will AI replace lawyers? Okay. It says this is ChatGPT's response. It is possible that AI could automate some tasks currently performed by lawyers, such as document review and legal research. However, it is unlikely that AI will completely replace lawyers as the legal profession involves many tasks that require human expertise, such as interpreting and applying laws, making judgments, and providing advice and representation to clients. That's a very long sentence, but it's actually readable. Oh, it's totally readable. Yeah. I'm amazed at the quality of the writing. Yeah. Additionally, many legal tasks require complex reasoning and decision-making, which are difficult for AI to replicate. AI may augment the work of lawyers by providing them with more efficient tools to perform their tasks, but it is unlikely to replace them entirely. Look, I think things are just going to get dramatically better. I mean, if you think about a judge's job, I, I, I remember reading about this a few years ago. They were doing a study on judges, I don't know, if it was DUI cases or things like that. And they were trying to figure out what sort of sentencing the judges were going to give them, right? Each of these people that were coming through. And they found that, of course, the judges were highly influenced by factors that seemed to have little or anything to do with the likelihood that that person is going to repeat the offense, right? Like how they're dressed, how they (laughs) explain themselves and so forth. And then they, they had, what did they do? They used an algorithm that predicted the likelihood of repeating that offense based on other factors. And that algorithm did the same or better on average than the judges. So, (laughs) Is that the way to go? No, not necessarily. But as the tool gets integrated, right, so that a judge or a lawyer can really get all the information they need and correct for maybe potential biases, these tools are going to become, make us better attorneys, judges, all that stuff. And I think a lot of work will be lost. And so a lot of attorneys will probably not be needed. Oh, I think that this potentially destroys many lawyer jobs. This seems like this seems devastating because like on the one hand, I I hate to say this, but this AI writes better than half of the students that we see. Yeah. And you can, this is wordy, but you can tell it, Hey, (laughs) it's correct. More concisely. 
you can tell it to do things. You oh, can you can tell it. it to write it. Oh, it's like, okay, do that again, but make it a little yeah, cut tighter. out the wordiness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Less wordy. You can wow. keep teaching it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, with a human, it's just <laughs> the, a computer is going to necessarily be better at many things. Internet research is one of those things. Doc review. Think about the pain. And doc review. Oh my God. Go through all these documents and call out all the ones or, you know, highlight, bring, bring to my attention all the ones that mention whatever, a certain date, a certain time, a certain place, a certain person or whatever. Just the internet is vastly better equipped to do these things than a human (laughs) using the internet. Yeah. I mean, we've already used it here at, uh, LSAT Demon, we had to, we were working on a contract and I asked it to write an exception to a clause. So I gave it the clause. I then said, hey, please write an exception to this clause for this particular reason. It did so. I didn't like the way it worded it. So I just kept telling it like, how would you say it if it were this? How would you say it if it were that? And eventually it came up with wording that I liked. And I said, okay, there we go. Sounds like you could have written it faster yourself there, maybe. But at the very least, it's giving you an excellent template to start with, right? Like, yeah, well, part of my hesitation is I'm not a practicing attorney. So it's right, not, of course. how do they say, you know, how do they right. say these exceptions? How do they draft them? And it's like, well, chat GBT is going to give me some ideas. Then I can take that and make it the way I really want it. But, and then also feel kind of like, oh, that's probably legit. Yeah. It, it strikes me that anybody who was smart would always use this as the first step of every assignment. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's like, why waste the, time? <laughs> what's the question that you're asking me? Okay. Well, let me see what chat GPT has to say about this. Okay. And then I could, I could augment from there. I could add to it. I could use my human judgment. Like, does this actually answer the question or not? What do I think about this? But letting the machine take the first crack at it instead of you sitting there staring at an empty page. Yeah. I mean, This seems like one of those tools where if you don't learn how to use, you know, and it doesn't have to be chat GPT, it could be whatever the next thing is after chat GPT. But if you don't stay in tune with things like this, it feels like the entire world is going to just blow past you. Yeah. My dad keeps comparing chat GPT to when the internet first started really having web pages for different (laughs) companies and so forth. Some people dismissed it and said, oh, that's like a techie thing, whatever. But even then they couldn't see how far the tech was going to be taken in so many niche areas, right? Like this is just one tool, but there's going to be one of these things that's solely dedicated to the practice of law. And it's going to be extraordinarily good at that. And another one that's dedicated to right. some totally different thing. Like this is an all purpose right. chat that can do whatever you want it to, but you could make it an expert at ERISA law and all areas of law. We must believe that there are law students who are right now doing that exact same thing or law clerks. Surely yeah. every savvy person who has access to this tool is using this tool to try to find out more about ERISA or whatever their area is. Like you'd be insane not to, it's way too powerful to ignore. Yeah. How is it going to, (laughs) boy, write a personal statement for law school. Yep. 
and you could have it reference probably your resume if you're like if your resume is online. Yeah, or just copy and paste it into ChatGPT. Say, hey, here's my resume. So the thing I about see. the chat is that it's it's conversational and it remembers oh, right, everything you chat. said. Yeah, it remembers everything you've already said. So you oh. know, Google search is is always an isolated event. So when you search something and then you it's tweak that search, done. yeah, yeah, it's like right. okay, it doesn't have any. Uh, ChatGPT remembers what you were looking for previously, so then it knows. Yeah, that's way better than just. That's random. why you can modify it so easily. So when right. it was writing those uh, exception clauses for me, I said, "Wait, tweak it this way." I didn't put the whole clause back in and then right, say, hey, right, right. I'd like to it just say, hey, can you say this differently? Can you say it this way? Can you add this? And it just does it. It rewrites it with that. So you put your resume in or you 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 tell a little bit of your story and you ask it to expand on it or whatever. You, you know, if you have bullet points of so the So you facts, go like, I'm, hey, I'm applying to law school. I need to write a two-page personal statement. It'll be like, what would it say back? Or maybe you don't. And then you're like, here's my well, resume. I think if you said Boom. I need to do that, they probably, I don't know what it would say. It might be like, okay, great. But oh, <laughs> please. write a personal statement. Yeah, you have to kind of command it to, I think, on some level. Yeah. Write my personal statement for law school. Using just, these facts. Yeah. You yeah. go, here's my resume, whatever. Wow. I would love to see what that type, what that comes up with. I mean, it like. <laughs> Well, again, you're not like going to use that, but you the draft, right? That's the part that slows so many people down. You could have it write six different stories. You say, okay, I want you to write a personal statement on this story, this story, this story, and this story. Yeah. You can that alone is see what you got. Yeah, which one you like better. And then you're like, okay, add in more facts. It will have to get those facts from you, but you can provide that in bullet point form, whatever you want. And then eventually you're going to have to take over and, and finish it out and make it make sense. But Boy, that's a lot easier. <laughs> this to me seems like a positive. I, you know, doc review, boy, if chat GPT replaces doc review, that has to be good for the world, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, people are going to lose their jobs, but that's been happening forever, right? Think about how many jobs we never have to do anymore that a long time ago, scores and scores of people would go into a factory and do. Right. And they're just super terrible jobs. I mean, they're like, they're not, it's not good. You don't, that's, you got it. Yeah. You're going to have to change with the times and find something else because those kinds of jobs are going to be, I mean, these are the most mindless, soulless, like super detail oriented, like high pressure, high stakes, but also unbelievably tedious. And all of these things are going to be, or many of these things are going to be automated out the lawyers who survive are going to be the ones who are yeah doing it on a higher level like letting their practice be augmented by this stuff yeah you know magnus carlson has his chess game augmented by computer programs right i mean he he follows the solvers or the he runs the simulations in computers to, to explore various different avenues that he might want to play on the actual board. Hmm. A lawyer is going to do that same thing with using chat GPT or other AI yeah, to the, augment the, their practice. The, the chat attorney version, and they're going to it'd be foolish not to ask how many ways can we counter argument you know, how many different counter arguments are there to this point 
with this precedent? It would be foolish not to ask because it's going to dig through all the archives in seconds and tell right. you, well, here are your four weaknesses. And you may decide to e immediately dismiss two of them because you go, yeah, well, those are fringe issues. But you know you've covered everything as opposed to the gotcha that we've had in the past, right? Where one smarter attorney is <laughs> outsmarting the other one because they've they've done more research or they know the law better. Like a lot of that's going to go away. And now it's really going to be fine tuning your skills at the very edge of practice, not in the rudimentary stuff that can be automated. I hate to break it to you if you're hoping to get into law because you think it's going to be a tech free field. You know, if you're one of those math, science, tech phobes and you you're hoping to like hide out in the law library amidst the dusty tomes. <laughs> I don't think that that's going to actually be refuge for you from the modern world because laws adversarial and your competitors are going to be using these tools. Yeah. I mean, the reality is though, the legal field will still probably always be a step behind, right? Like chat GPT <laughs> will be adopted to all these, to coding, True. to all these other things first. And then finally something right. will come along. For, yeah, yeah. Because you still have the old law, the partner in every law office who is <laughs> like, you know, print that document out and then fax it to me at my office <laughs> so that I can scan it and then photocopy it for our filing cabinet, you know, like that type of shit. Yeah. Well, and, and I still remember some, someone talking about the Supreme court or it wasn't until recently that they would accept PDFs. They had to do exactly what you said. They had to print the PDF out then, or maybe it was some circuit court and they had to hand the document physically across the yeah. And when you table, go into law firms, you're going to have to deal it. with their old bullshit technology. You're going to encounter judges who are going to insist on outdated practices in their courtrooms. You know, lawyers are like hoop jumpers to large extent, right? You, yeah. You've got to get used to navigating all of these just quirks of various systems. But like the, the lawyers who are going to do really incredible things, um, you're going to be so much better equipped with this weapon. Yeah. I can't imagine not using this for like, of course your kids are using it for their homework assignments. Why wouldn't they use it for their homework assignments? Write some essay about Daniel Boone or whatever. All right. Chat GPT. Tell me about Daniel Boone. Yep. You can tweak it, but why wouldn't you start with like just, it's a better way of searching the internet. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell it to cite sources too. You can tell it to write it in the form of a haiku. Yep. You can tell it to write. My <laughs> my one son was asking it to write it as if it were a ninth grader. And he said it sounded like a fucking second grader. So he had to, <laughs> <laughs> it to up it a little bit. And I was like, well, maybe that's a ninth grader. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's, that's, that's the average ninth grader. You never know. But um, yeah, anyway. Okay. Are we ready to uh, move on? Yeah. Daniel says, he wrote a, says subject, making up a 170 to 175 plus gap. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I'm a junior in college with a 4.0 GPA. I took the June LSAT, uh, sorry, June LSAT 2022. Weird construction there. 
and received a 170. I started my practice a month earlier with a diagnostic of 162, and I worked up the nine, the eight points using only Khan Academy. I took only two practice tests, including my diagnostic, which again was a 162. I think that path is very atypical, and I'm trying to be smarter for my next attempt. I'm aiming for a 175 plus and tentatively planning on retaking in April or June to apply to start law school in fall of 2024. I'm a free demon user now, but I'm planning on buying basic when I exhaust the free resources. Any additional tips for someone in my situation to make up those last few points? Okay, that's Daniel. Yep. Don't, as you would say, Nathan, don't make your 4.0 sad. Also, don't make your diagnostic of 162 sad, right? Daniel is a candidate who can easily score 175 plus. So I'm glad you're going for that. Your mistake here is that you only took two practice tests. You you just need to work harder. You've got the, the brain power to do this test very well. Just don't sell yourself short. Start getting into the habit of drilling every day, working every day, get basic. I also wouldn't sell yourself short. Maybe your financial resources are such that you can't get anything but basic, but um, I'd want you to be taking recent tests and getting our explanations. So that requires at least premium. I think you can do this fairly quickly given your diagnostic of 162, but don't let your attempts to do this fast end up preventing you from getting in the high 170s, which you seem fully capable of. Yeah, with a diagnostic of 162, we would expect that someone makes it into the mid 170s if they do it right. Um, Basic has all the tests that we can give away for free. Uh, Oh, sorry, um, free. You're You're currently a free Demon subscriber. That has all the tests that we can give away for free, but you will need to upgrade at some point so that you can start doing more tests yeah, pay attention to your practice test scores. When your practice test scores get regularly into the 170s, then you can take it again. Don't anchor yourself on the April or June exam. I think you should be actually thinking about taking the April and June exams probably because it looks like you've only taken it once officially. And that was actually in the previous cycle. So in this new cycle, you've got three chances between now and fall of 2024. So if I were you, I'd be looking at maybe March, April, June, or yeah, maybe August. February. February oh, sorry. April, okay, so February might be too late if you're not planning on that. You didn't sign up already. It's too late. So maybe April, June, August. April, June, and August. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, and then if April goes well and you get your 176 or whatever, you can just say, okay, I'll cancel June or I'll forget about June and forget about August. But other, if it doesn't, then okay, so you're going to take another bite at the apple in June and then yet another bite at it in August. You could even take it again in September if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. You could, you're in the point in the cycle where you could easily take it four more times if you wanted to. Um, oh, well, wait. Yeah, and he's a junior. Okay. He's trying I mean, to go K through JD. Yeah. Look, Daniel, you can go to the best schools in the world. So. Yeah, you can. And there's no rush, Daniel. So if you decide you want to take a gap year or two, work for a while before you do this, you definitely can do that. No reason to rush into law school that you got the whole rest of your life to be a lawyer. Um, But if you want to start law school in fall 2024, yeah, I think your plan is take it in April, June and August of 2023 and then apply at the beginning of that next application cycle. It's going to work out amazingly for you, Daniel. 
Okay, two more undergraduates who are also talking about studying while in school. Wow, it's a real, uh, it looks like you can maybe just read the highlighted parts of uh, Cassidy and Jack here. Okay, so Cassidy says, I'm in my last semester. Should I start studying now or wait until after graduation? If you suggest after graduation, would it be helpful to do any studying at all until I start with your program intensively? Uh, keep your grades up, Cassidy. We don't know what kind of grades you have, but if you're still in undergrad, you need to get straight A's before you do anything else. Yeah, this is your last semester. The window is closing on your opportunity to get the best GPA you can get. Um, I mean, I guess this raises the question, should she continue schooling? <laughs> Should she continue schooling? Yeah, so she's she's in her last semester, right? So she's going to graduate in May or June. Some people have talked about doing another semester if they want to bring up their oh, grades. Oh, 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 Cassidy, it is possible if you're yeah, you, you could you could not graduate, like purposely not graduate. It's an expensive endeavor, but yeah. it's something that some people if your grades are pretty bad, it might actually be more valuable to get straight A's. We have no idea what Cassidy's grades actually are. Um, If you are getting straight A's, Cassidy, in all of your classes, and I don't mean A minuses because A minuses are worth a 3.7 and that's not a 4.0. If you're getting A's, if you're getting a 4.0, actually, if your school offers A pluses, you should be getting A pluses if you can. Yeah. To get a 4.3. But the point is, if you're getting the very best grades you can and you have remaining time in your schedule, then you can study for the LSAT at the same time. But generally, you can't probably excel at both things at once and you only get one chance to do your undergrad and your undergrad grades are going to matter a lot for law school admissions. So you're insane to do both if you're going to do uh, if you're going to get less than perfect grades. Yep. From now on. Yep. Why don't you read Jack's? It's probably the same thing. Okay, I studied for the LSAT last summer a bit and recently this past break, increasing my score from a 140 to a 151. I am worried that I will lose some of my progress over the semester given my concentration on school. Would you all recommend any study habits to maintain, improve my 151 over the course of the semester? No, it's secondary to grades. Don't worry about it. That's great that you made a bit of progress. Um, hopefully I don't think it's going to be too hard to get back on the horse. Like when you go from 140 to 151, what you're doing probably is you're, you're starting to recognize that the easy ones are easy and that you should be able to solve the easy ones. And I don't think that's going to change Like there might be a little rust that you have to shake off when you, when you come back. But if you're worried about this at all, then just don't study. There's no point. You don't need to study while you're also trying to keep your grades up. Yeah. It'll come back really fast. It'll come back totally fast. We can see it in the summer, Jack. That's, that's great. Thanks for writing in. Okay. Hey, so this yeah. morning I played racquetball and the last time ball. I played racquetball, cool. yeah. Last time I played, I was a teenager. Okay. First game, totally bombed it. Second game, definitely a lot of that stuff was coming back. Even just remembering, oh yeah, trying to get it in the corner, trying to get it to go around yeah. the, the edge. These things, they're going to come back super fast. I know it's a totally different domain, Jack, but don't worry about it. Focus on your grades. Yeah. Focus on your grades. Uh, Okay. Caleb says, 
hello, Ben and Nathan brackets, and then the words exclamation point, and then a bracket. Caleb's being funny because yep. Caleb knows that we always pronounce exclamation exclamation points. Okay. I've been struggling to make improvements in reading comp. I have been dropping anywhere from six to 12 points and regularly find myself unable to finish all four sections as a result of having to go back through the passages, trying to refresh my memory to choose the right answer. Unable to finish as a result of having to go back through the passages. Okay. I think I think specifically one passage at a time. I, I hope right. that Caleb is not referring to the whole section. <laughs> no one yeah. is doing that, reading all yeah. four passages and then answering the questions. And that would be yeah. insane. Okay. Caleb says, I've noticed that I'm often unable to articulate well what I just read or remember where I saw a piece of information that is relevant. It's clear, Caleb, that you're not comprehending as you're reading, like you're not engaged enough as you're reading. Like you're not getting it. If you can't tell me what they just said, then you didn't read it. Not to the <laughs> standards that the law school admission test requires. Yeah. Just pause after each sentence. Let each period be a stop sign for you. Stop there. Think about what was just said. Think about what you think of it and then continue on. Caleb says he struggles remembering where he saw a piece of information that is relevant. I often do too, but I remember the piece of information, so I don't need to go find it. I don't remember yeah, where or they you said. Know, you know where they were talking about that list of reasons in favor sure. of this project or whatever. And so you don't necessarily remember all the bullet points on the list, but you could go, you have a vague idea where the list is and you scan back and you kind of know that it was in the top half or the bottom half or whatever, and then you go find it. I mean, that's, that's when you don't remember specific things from the list, but I would say there's a lot of times too, where I'm like, I don't know where the author said that, but the author clearly yeah. hates squirrels. Right. So right. like, right. you want me to go find that sentence? Like, well, where did, did you miss the main point? Because, well, right. Yeah. You know, so a lot Half of these the things, questions are just main point questions in disguise. They're not yeah. as detail oriented. The questions are not as detail oriented as you might think. There are some where it's like, you know, especially on comparative reading, you might have like this was mentioned in, in the first passage, but not in the second passage. OK, so then I have to go through and make sure that it's actually there in the first passage, but it's not there at all in the second passage. I might have to do some of those detail checks, but more often than not, I'm predicting the answer to the question based on my understanding of the main point of the passage, even when it is a question that's about some detailed part of the passage. Well, you know, the answer just can't be that because the author never said... <laughs> squirrels are the shit, right? Right. So the it's, opposite. Like, it's like, well, they definitely didn't say that. That's the opposite of their main point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the wrong answers are so shitty that, you know, and half the time I already predicted, oh, well, the author doesn't like these squirrels because of whatever reason. Yeah. Caleb continues. I started using the highlight tool and have noticed in my admittedly small sample size of tests that I feel much more confident about the content of the passage is this something you typically recommend students use? And if so, what types of information do you prior do you try to prioritize when highlighting? Neither Ben nor I highlight at all. So that's the answer is we don't do that. And Caleb then provides an update that says, I realized after half a dozen more RC sections using the highlighter that it was using way too much brain power 
having to decide whether something was important to highlight or not. And that probably is my number one beef with highlighting. Really, you're going to highlight that? How do you know? How do you know that that's so important? You're reading the, you know, you're in the middle of the second sentence of the passage. Oh, I'm going to highlight that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, why? Uh, you don't, you have no idea what's important. You haven't read the whole thing yet. Yeah. And so Caleb now is like actually having angst, you know, taking time to try to just, do I highlight it? Do I not highlight it? Oh my God. And I can't decide. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you're never going to refer back to those highlights anyway. Okay. And then he read my book and said he doesn't highlight and he gets it. So disregard. Glad, I'm gl glad you learned your lesson there, Caleb. I, I just don't think highlighting. Now, I've heard some people like neurodivergent students, whatever, you might think highlighting is important to you for whatever reason. That's fine. But it's not a thing that Ben and I, neither of us do it. And not only do we not teach it, but we actually teach people, you know, if you only are highlighting because you think that that's a good strategy on reading comp or something. Yeah, we would both tell you to not do that because I think you're highlighting it instead of actually understanding it. Yeah. You know, that seems important. Highlight. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what did it say? I, I don't know. Uh, let me I'll go back and reread the highlighted part. Well, <laughs> OK, how about you just process it and have something actually go in in the first place? Yeah. Well, you know, it's strange about this claim about whether something was important. Um, you took issue with it because you said, hey, you're in the middle of a sentence. How the hell do you, are you going to know whether that right. sentence ends up being important? And it is true that by the end, there are some sentences that you would say, okay, that's very important because that's the main point. That's what the author's trying to say or prove or whatever, or that's a crucial piece of evidence that's trying to justify their conclusion or who knows what. But I would argue that everything is important because some random questions yeah. have to do with some side comment that you would dismiss. So is it about what's... I, when when Caleb or anyone says, oh, I'm trying to decide whether this is important, I think what they're trying to decide is whether to remember that piece of information. Is this going to be one of the answers to one of the questions? Yes. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you don't know because they could ask you about the smallest little detail anywhere in the passage. They can. And there's only 15 sentences. So saying everything is important is totally fine. It's It's not impossible or difficult to somehow... Just take it all in. And as the way you do that is as you read each sentence, you're, you're adding to your, I would say meta sentence. It's like the, the thing that captures the whole passage, right? Which I, is I like to the, talk about it as it's, you're evolving your understanding of the main point of the passage, right? Yeah. Like when you read the first sentence, you go, oh, okay. So this topic is important to you. I wonder whether you think this thing is good or bad. And then yep. the next sentence is going to add another new facet or it's going to start to maybe give you some opinion. And then you kind of revise it and you go, oh, well, in light of this fact, maybe you think that this thing is bad or good. You start to have your suspicions about what the author might think. Then you read a little bit more and you continue to evolve it. You continue to revise it. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a wood carving or something. You have this rough sense of what the main point is and mm -hmm. you're constantly carving it and making it more and more accurate as you get more information. So it's almost like folks who want to decide whether a sentence or clause is important is they're 
they're memorizing each of these ideas in isolation, which would be challenging. Like, oh, I got to remember 20 pieces of information or 16 pieces of information. Like, no, what I want to do is following the story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Making your understanding of the author's point of view clear and making your understanding of someone else's point of view clear. Like when I'm done reading these passages, if there were two people or three people arguing, it's like, well, this guy thinks this, this guy thinks this, and the author thinks that they're both wrong. That's my summary of the passage and the main point. And it comes down to these three little wood craft pieces I've created or one piece if it's just a passage by one author who never cites anyone else. Yeah. Highlighting is bad. I think that one of the reasons why like people get taught that they're supposed to highlight the main point of each paragraph. Yeah. And so people are like, well, this is the main point of this part. No, it's not. They don't have to explicitly state the main point of every paragraph. This is not a seventh grade essay. This is this is some other convoluted thing. And they the main point can be something that you can glean from all of those sentences and that the paragraph itself doesn't even have to have a main point. I swear to God, they put the paragraph breaks in there almost randomly in the reading comp a lot of times. They're so bad. Some of those paragraphs are just. Well, they're way too long. long. Like, it yeah. clearly used to be three paragraphs and they just deleted two of the carriage returns or two the paragraph breaks. And now we're like looking at one super long paragraph. And, you know, that strategy of like, well, we'll look for one main point in each paragraph. So now you have a kid who's like, OK, so this 40 lines, that's this main point. And then this seven lines, that's this main point. Yeah. like you're getting so caught up in all this structural bullshit and in your highlighting and in your technical attempts at finding main points. And instead it's like, are you listening to the story that they're telling you? Do you get it? Like they told you that this person thinks this, and they told you that this person thinks that. And then in the end they said, I think both of these people are wrong. Did you get that? That was the point. (laughs) Yeah. Don't you, don't you think this is the true test of whether someone knows the main point? whether they can sit there and look you in the eye and tell you the main point in their words, which are almost always short sentences, plain English, none of the words from the actual passage, maybe a word here or two, versus so many other people who are going back and quoting things verbatim. And they sound like more technical or more LSAT-y, but they're actually... It's not in their head. It's not coming from... You don't understand. From, you don't get it. Yeah. You just don't understand what the document is. You don't understand what the purpose of that document is. Like I yeah. I used to, in the pencil and paper days, right, in a live classroom, it would be like, mm-hmm. hey, if I snatched that paper, that booklet, if I took it away from you, yeah, and then I said, what did you just read? Would you be able to tell me essentially what the point of that passage was? Yeah. If you can't do that, like if you immediately are looking back at the passage, then yeah, you're not, you're not doing it right. You do not have to memorize the passage, but nope. you do have to be able to look me, you know, make eye contact while you tell me the main point of the passage. Memorizing is actually harder. It detracts, it distracts you from the goal, right? It becomes an yeah. information like regurgitation exercise as yeah. opposed to just like, what are you trying to tell me? And continuing to refine that understanding until you get to the end. Looking for the big picture. Why does this document exist? Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. You want to read this uh, email from Nick? Yep. Nick says, 
uh, the subject is full tuition to Mizzou or full tuition plus a stipend to Drexel University. Good problem to have. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Nathan and Ben. I appreciate your helpful guidance regarding avoiding, stu avoiding student debt. I couldn't agree more. I'm faced with a difficult decision. I am fortunate to have received multiple full tuition offers to law school, by, but I am stuck deciding between Mizzou and Drexel University. At Drexel, I have received a named scholarship and a fellowship that covers tuition, fees, books, and leaves me with a yearly stipend of about $5,000 to help with living expenses. Nice. Oh, so, so great. At Missouri, tuition and nearly all of the fees are covered. I think a couple hundred bucks is left I can cover out of pocket. Both schools look solid for my goals. However, the COL, the cost of living, is mm -hmm. significantly cheaper at Missouri in terms of rent, food, transportation. I'm concerned about Drexel's lack of alumni base as their school is only 16 years old, but I do like Drexel's location. ABA reports indicate Drexel's employment is strong due to their robust co-op and clinic program. I would like to hear your thoughts on newer school versus old school. I mean, I already have an answer. I guess we can dig into this a little bit more, but do you have a thought? Good problem to have. What We're talking about $5,000. Oh, you get the stipend at Drexel. Yeah. So $5,000 seems like it's going to at least be a nice start toward defraying the difference in cost of living. My thing about cost of living is that I think you get what you pay for when it comes to cost of living. I mean, the reason why places are expensive is because everybody wants to live in those places. And the and reason they why they want jobs. to live in those places is because yeah. of jobs, conveniences, culture, transportation, all kinds of shit. So you know, you're talking about Philadelphia, which is a pretty cool city and also close to New York. And you're comparing that to Columbia, Missouri which I don't even know where that is. No, I have to agree. And I ha I don't know if that's where you're going saying to go to Drexel, but that's what I was thinking, especially. And as soon as Nick said, I like Drexel's location. I mean, that's in some ways that's intangible. It's hard to replace that. Like you're probably going to practice close to or near to where you go to school. So <laughs> yeah, like Columbia. don't make your life location based on a few thousand dollars. Columbia is halfway between Kansas City and St. Louis. I mean, it's the center of the center of Missouri. That is extremely different. Like that's that's where I would be really making this decision, I think, if I was Caleb. Or sorry, not who are we talking to? Nick. Nick. Yeah, if I was Nick, I would be making the decision based on where I wanted to live. Yep. Because the money looks like it's going to be about equal. I did glance at the uh, conditional scholarships um, mm, good. The, because uh, it looks like in the past few years, Drexel, wow, three years ago, they only eliminated three out of 75. But then the very next year, they eliminated 16 out of 63. And then they eliminated nine out of 30. So it looks like they actually cut the number of conditional you got to look at your exact offer there, Nick, because is it conditional? Mm. What are the conditions? Those things could be changing every single year. But we do know that Drexel has a history of taking away people's scholarships. So you want to be 
just understand that that's a possible risk. It looks like Mizzou is doing the same thing, but um, to a lesser extent. It looks like they don't offer as many conditional scholarships and they don't eliminate quite as many of them. Yeah, but still check it out. And also make sure you don't make uh, quick judgments. If it says, for example, that you have to maintain a 3.0, you might think, oh, that's easy. I can do that. I do that now. But what's a 3.0 at that school? That may be... Maybe hard to get because they might yeah. curve their 1L grades around a 2.7, which is what Hastings did when I was there. Yeah. And I actually think that that's kind of the most common practice in law schools is that the average 1L GPA is going to be a 2.7. Yeah. B plus. It was a B plus average in all of the classes. So for every mm -hmm. grade they gave higher than B plus, they essentially had to give another grade lower than B plus. And then you end up with everybody has GPAs that center right around 2.7. It's just a mathematical certainty that that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so if they're giving you one of these, oh yeah, just maintain a 3.0. I mean, no problem. Right. Yeah. But meanwhile, that's significantly below the average GPA at their school. I don't think that's actually what's going on at either of these schools because um, it looks like they haven't been pulling the rug out very often in the past, which they would be doing if it was that kind of a setup. That said, they can always change it every single year and they also don't have to make the same offer to every student. So you, Nick, want to read that fine print and look at exactly what those offers are. I think your opportunities are going to be vastly better in Philadelphia than they are unless you want to live in Columbia, Missouri, or like really want to be in Missouri. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Yep. This is from Connor. The subject is only school in town. I think it's you. Hi, Demon team. I've been studying with the Demon for a few months and hope to improve my scores enough to apply for the 2023 cycle. I think I hope you mean... Oh, yeah. I plan to apply early and broadly. <laughs> Great. What are your thoughts on lower ranked schools that also happen to be the only law school in the state or region? For example, Vermont and Roger Williams are both the only schools in their respective states. If you're interested in living slash practicing in those states, is it worth it to attend those schools? Yes. Or would it be wiser to attend a higher ranked school out of state and obtain reciprocity after the fact. Well, if you're the type of person who can get into Yale, then yeah, there's a strong argument to be made for go do your education in Yale and, and then, then practice move wherever back you want. to Vermont and become senator or whatever you want to do, you know? Yeah. But if you're like a a normal, like if you're not two standard deviations above the mean as far as law school applicants um, are concerned, if you're not going to a truly elite school, then I don't think it's worth it to go to a higher rank school. So like, for example, where's Roger Williams, by the way? I don't know. Vermont's in Vermont. Roger <laughs> Williams. What? Their address just says <laughs> top of the 509, 10 Medicom Avenue, RWU School <laughs> of Law. That's their whole address. It doesn't have a city or a state. Oh, it's Rhode Island. Okay. Well, Rhode Island's so small that if you just send it <laughs> to that address, it. it'll, <laughs> yeah, it'll go right there. Is it in Providence? Uh, I mean, that's the only city in Rhode Island, so. Bristol. I okay, there are other places apparently in Rhode Island. Um, New England is what we're talking about here. So like Drexel, which we were just talking about, is probably a pretty good school to be thinking about here. Um, Philly, it's not 
you know, close to Vermont, but it's, it's in the region. So would it be worth it if you wanted to live in Rhode Island? Would it be worth it to instead go to Drexel for its higher reputation and then come back to Roger Williams? Because it is I mean, a better school. I mean, their median LSAT is nine points higher. Yeah, certainly possible. I mean, some of this might just come down to asking the school how many people end up practicing in Vermont who go to Drexel, or maybe you're looking at the firms in those states and saying, okay, here's a firm. How many people come from Drexel? How many people come from out of state, similarly ranked schools? It might be a gray area that you have to kind of investigate. I've never heard of Roger Williams University. That is a fairly bottom feeding kind of school, it appears. Um, you know, they accept almost 70% of their applicants. Their median LSAT is 150. Their median UGPA is 3.3. I don't know. I mean, if you're interested in, this is a little bit odd, Connor, because it, it seems like you're just sort of asking hypothetically, maybe you're interested in Vermont and Rhode Island. I would, if you're, if you want to go to those states, I would at least apply to these schools, but this decision may become very obvious once you do or do not get offers from other schools yeah. around. Okay. I think you're right. That's our, that's my final advice. I think for Connor is you're, you're stats debating here kind of, and you're going to apply broadly, apply broadly. You can make your mind, you can make up your mind on these issues once you actually have the offers in hand. Cause without looking at the money, how can we possibly even say? Yeah. I mean, if Roger Williams comes back with half tuition, but Drexel comes back with full plus a stipend, <laughs> it's, it's over. It's like, right. no thanks. Like why, why even ask? Right. 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 Yeah. It, it, but I will answer this question. I mean, when he says, if you are interested in living slash practicing in those States, is it worth it to attend those schools? Well, it's definitely worth it to consider those schools. Is it worth it to attend those schools? I don't know. What are they going to charge you to attend? Yep. I mean, especially states like Vermont and Rhode Island, you probably you just have to maybe apply to those schools. See what happens. Ask for a fee waiver. <laughs> right, exactly. And then apply broadly and you'll have, you know, just apply to it at least 15, 20 schools. And then you'll have a whole spectrum of offers to choose from. Yep. You want to read this email from A? Hi, I'm a former Demon subscriber and current law school applicant. This cycle, I applied for both a Fulbright scholarship and law school. I received notification two weeks ago that I am a Fulbright semi-finalist, but I am torn as to whether I should disclose this to law schools. To clarify, I have not yet received a scholarship, but my application is being reviewed by the host country's Fulbright, Fulbright committee. If they accept me, I will receive the scholarship... I should hear back in late March and early or early April after I will have received decisions from most, if not all law schools. On the one hand, I'm hesitant to tell law schools about Fulbright because they may deny me since I might not matriculate this cycle. But on the other hand, being a Fulbright semi-finalist enhances my candidacy and my proposed research is something I'm very passionate about. I've applied to most T14 schools, have one admit, no denies, and no wait lists. Should I tell the school that I have already been admitted to? Should I tell uh, Harvard, Stanford, Yale because they are reach schools for me? Tell every school. The stats here are 171 LSAT, 3.98 GPA, and an MBA. 
it's a question about yield protection, essentially, right? I mean, that's the only reason why you don't tell them is because you're worried that they're going to actually, they would have admitted you without this information. And yep. now they're going to deny you because you gave them the information. That's your fear. Yeah. I, I had this feeling that the, the research part of this is going to be something that is interesting to schools like Yale. Right. That's their jam is academic research. Yeah. And if you're Yale, I have a feeling that Yale might be like, oh, people turn down Fulbrights to come to us. Yeah. Like, is Yale really yield protecting? Like, are, is Yale going to go, oh, this person is a Fulbright semifinalist, so if they get it, they might deny us? That's so weird, too, because it's not even a Fulbright final. It's not like you have a Fulbright offer. You're a Fulbright yeah. semifinalist, which what are the odds of getting? I mean, I guess that's what I would want to know if I was the if I was a school, if I was Yale, I would want to know what the odds are of Fulbright semifinalists turning into Fulbright scholars. And I would also then want to know, like, have I been denied in the past? Like if I've been burned in the past by a Fulbright applicant, then maybe there would be some discrimination there. How long does the Fulbright program last? Is it a year, two years? Yeah, because you might be able to like if there it could be that Yale could admit you and then defer you. Yep. And they don't right? lose out on the yield issue. Presumably they don't lose out on that yield calculation. I think the answer to this one is I don't know. Yep. It does seem like it gives you a good opportunity to reach out to these schools that you haven't heard back from at all. You know, if you're looking for a reason to say hello to these schools, if you applied two months ago three months ago, and now you have this new information, it gives you an opportunity to send them a nice email, I guess. And yeah. You know, we don't know the benefit of this because of the yield protection issue, but A, are you busy right now? Should A be taking the LSAT again? A 171. It feels like... Oh. <laughs> that's like, you want to talk about something yeah. that you should tell schools about is you take the test yeah. in March or no, that's not a one in March, but April... <laughs> Right. And it you is your LSAT that's keep the reason why Harvard, Stanford, Yale are reach schools for you is because of your LSAT. Like your grades are so good that you could be pretty likely at these schools with better with a better LSAT. Your LSAT is not impressing. They're not jumping up and down to admit you because of the 171. Yep. Good point. Didn't think about that. But yeah, have you have you exhausted all of your attempts and could you be taking the LSAT again right now? Because that would be a thing that you could update the schools that would maybe really change things. Yeah. Good Because even if, if they don't care about the Fulbright, you know, yield protection issue, even if they don't care about it, how important is that? It's not going to be reported on their ABA. Right. It's a soft, you know, it, it might be something that they put in their marketing materials that we have X number X, of Fulbright. Yeah. Well, but it wouldn't do anything for them, though, because you're not a Fulbright scholar, you're a Fulbright semifinalist and you're not going to be both. Apparently you're not going to be both a Fulbright, Fulbright scholar and a law student. I mean, if you came back, but if you came back, you, but that doesn't help them this cycle. Yeah. But it's also, it's all, it, it's also, it's just like, it's a soft. So in broad strokes, it doesn't matter at all one way or the other. Yep. 
it's also so uncertain because you're just a semifinalist. What's that mean? Is this one of those things where it's pretty easy to become a semifinalist, but then real hard to actually be a Fulbright scholar? If that's the case, then this isn't that impressive. And so it's only going to raise doubt about whether you're going to come. Right. <laughs> if it's an automatic, if it's like, oh, no, actually, Fulbright semifinalists almost always become Fulbright scholars, then, yeah, maybe it becomes a negative because of the yield protection. That said, you send them an email, you tell them about it. Maybe you get top of mind. I think that's the reason to do it is just to be able to have a nice follow up with them. And, hey, I've continued my blah, blah, blah. I'm really interested in this thing. I actually have a Fulbright. I'm a semifinalist now for this Fulbright. Thought you might like to know about that. But I'd still really love to come to your law school. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe a net benefit. But it's debatable. Speculating. Yeah. The LSA is not debatable. (laughs) Right. Noted. All right. Let's uh, read this one from Tax Guy. The subject is combining skills. Tax Guy says, all, comma. That's like, hi, all. That's the greeting, I guess. Yeah. All. I started a tax associate position in public accounting this month and work in our firm's private client service division. My client assignments will develop me into an expert in corporate partnership and S-corp taxation. I will also get exposure to individual taxation and attain a CPA designation in the process. Wow. After taking, sorry, after finishing all CPA exam sections in the next two months, I am considering preparing for the LSAT and taking it multiple times before applying for law school enrollment in fall 2024 or 25. My desire is to combine my CPA designation and expertise in tax accounting with a JD focused in business law or something similar and pursue a career in private practice. Uh, Well, I mean, I think you would probably want to just focus in tax law. I don't know that there is such a thing as focusing in business law, by the way, but there certainly is a tax. Taxation is a huge, lucrative field of law. Yep. Tax guy continues. My understanding is that the CPA and JD designations are very valuable when combined. Yes, in tax law. But I'm not sure where a person with these two skill sets would go in private practice, if at all. Well, you would be a tax lawyer. I'm not sure you would be able to start in private practice as a tax attorney. You would probably want to be working within a firm, would be my guess. But you can absolutely concentrate in tax at many law schools and it's probably one of the better concentrations as far as like jobs. Yeah. The thing I keep thinking about is high net worth individuals who need like a, an attorney who also understands the tax. Oh, side a thousand of, percent. Yeah. I took a couple tax classes at Hastings and it was clear that there are, you know, that the whole tax code is built around just, infinite loopholes that you are going to try to exploit and Mm -hmm. you're, you're going to end up at some point being challenged by the IRS. And then you're going to need a tax attorney to come in and explain why the strategies that your investment advisor or your CFO or whatever, like, Oh no, we thought that this was this, this is under this rule and this regulation and we're following this precedent and you're going to end up with a tax attorney in there 
trying to justify those million dollar deductions <laughs> to the IRS. Yeah. Or to tax court, actually. Yeah. I really enjoyed the tax classes that I took at Hastings. Well, the hardest one was too hard for me and I hated it. But, um, you know, if you're a CPA, you're going to love all this nerding out about um, <laughs> just, <laughs> just wild legal fictions and all kinds of nonsense that's going on in the tax code. And I am quite sure that you could productively combine those two things together uh, in some sort of a legal practice. Yeah. Heather Field adjacent. was my professor at Hastings that I really liked. And I think she's still a tax professor at, uh, yeah, UC Law, San Francisco. You could find Heather Field and ask her about tax law there. That would be maybe a place to start. Cool. This next one is from Nate. Subject is study plan and practice test scores. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm a current LSAT Demon Live subscriber and have been studying with the Demon since the beginning of October of last year. Okay, for the last few months. My diagnostic was a 141, although I was distracted for much of the test. Not trying to justify the lower score, I couldn't control my neighbor's dog. Now, since then, I've been mostly drilling all sections with infrequent timed sections in the mix. On average, studying three to five hours a week, not including review. On January 1st, I took a practice test scoring a 158. I was surprised to see that I guessed every question on the last logic game correctly. <laughs> yeah, that is surprising. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Given that the probability of answering those six questions correctly, again, is, assuming my math is right, one out of 15,625. That sounds right. Do you recommend I continue to drill with timed sections or take more practice tests? Drill with timed sections. Interesting. My plan is to take the test this summer and apply for the 2024 cycle. Do you also think this is a smart timeline given where I'm starting from? Thanks. Nate, not Nathan. That's what he wrote. Anyways, um, Nate, time sections, practice tests, drilling, they're all valuable things. Just keep doing all three of them. I wrote a blog post that hopefully we can link in the show notes here that was called One Hour LSAT. It was a proposed study schedule for all students, whether you're starting or middle of your prep or end of your prep. It's just an idea for how we think you should be spending your day to day LSAT studies. And it was a mix of drilling. Drilling is individual questions. It's not timed sections. That's not what we call drilling. We call drilling. Yeah one question at a time or one game or one reading comp passage, but not nothing to do with timing. So drilling is just work on the problems, practice solving the problems untimed. Don't worry about it. Just worry about getting them right. Worry about understanding. Drilling yep. is where you build that understanding. Practice tests. We don't really advise people to do too many full length practice tests, maybe one every other week or one a month or something like that. Yeah, because they're hard to review effectively, right? You but have timed so many sections, you yeah. should be doing timed sections quite regularly. Um, you should be doing at least one of each type of timed section per week. So one reading comp, one games, one LR, at least timed per week. And that gives you your one test per week. If you want to combine those three sections together into one, you can figure out where your 120 to 180 LSAT falls that week. But yeah, the answer is 
I guess maybe start with that blog post because it'll give you an idea of just how you might structure a week's schedule just spending one hour a day. If you have more time, of course, you can do more, but we want you starting with some balance between untimed one question at a time drilling and timed sections. Great. Hope that's helpful for Nate. What do you think about the neighbor's dog? I mean, if it's really bothering you, ideally you get to a point where you can just zone these things out. But if it's really bothering you, stop and take the test some other time. If you were better at the LSAT, I don't think the neighbor's dog would confu- would uh, distract you so much. I mean, because the neighbor's dog, it's not in your house, right? It's in the neighbor's yard, presumably barking. I, yeah, that can definitely be annoying. Next time, though, like, yeah, are you going to talk to your neighbor in advance? Well, I, you better like try to figure out how to put that out of your, like, we can't have that happen again. It's a great opportunity to practice is going back to the section. For some reason you care about that dog barking. Right. Right. Like why, why can't you just lose yourself in the content of the test? Because that's what like a, someone who was better at the LSAT would just like, yeah, yeah, I know there's a dog, but I'm, I'm distracted from the dog by the test. Yeah. Wait, the dog was barking? Yeah, I mean, I guess I heard that a couple times, but... Right, I didn't even I notice was doing the dog because I, yeah. I was in the LSAT. What? I'm not paying attention to the dog. Yeah. I, I think that might be just because you weren't yet that good at the test. But you've made a lot of improvement. Yeah, 17 points off of that diagnostic. That's great. Yep. Uh, the timeline, don't worry about it. Just um, yeah, keep studying until you get practice test scores you want and then take the test, whatever that is. Subject, check out the new UC <laughs> Law San Francisco <laughs> online store. Oh, great. This is an email from Nathan. <laughs> I I forwarded this into the podcast. I'm no longer doing the agendas. Thank thank you, Eric. Uh, <laughs> oh, so it's not your LSAT fault. Demon teacher, Eric. Is, no, yeah, now it's not my fault if I send something to the show. Yeah, um, he put it on there. Okay. Well, just because we had read the lengthy email from um, our favorite chancellor and dean at UC College. Uh, look at, oh my God, look at the signature line. What? What's it say? Oh, just you, look at the oh, very geez. bottom lines. University of California College of the comma law San Francisco. <laughs> Man, really, no one checks in there. <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, Anyway, (laughs) this uh, this email, we read the long email from Fagman the other day and Dean Fagman sent out another email to the alumni network pimping the UC law um, store. You can get apparel, gifts and more at the UC law San Francisco store. And um, I didn't understand what Eric was saying, but Eric says that he hates the logo. He says that like something about the kerning is off and he hates the, I, I don't know. I don't have really a logo. Uh, what do you think of the logo? I just, I, well, yeah, I mean, I don't like this old, I don't like law logos generally. This old <laughs> Yeah. It's school, not like anybody like, has a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it all looks bad to me. <laughs> Look at the pennant. 
Well, yeah, the logo uh, by itself, some versions, so the, they've got different versions of the logo. The one yeah. that says UC, okay, well, it, it does look very like, okay, so your shirt now, you're going to go around with a shirt that just says UC Law. <laughs> What's up? Oh, you go to UCLA? No, no. UC Law, San Francisco. You go to Berkeley? No, no. UC Law, San Francisco. San Francisco it's yeah. like they're just trying to steal the reputation of the other better UCs. Stuff um, is expensive. Of course it's expensive. It's fundraiser, right? Yeah. Look at the the hilarious thing is the logo that just has law. Like the pennant makes me laugh. That pennant is very funny. Yeah. Because if you were going to put that pennant, by the way, they don't have any <laughs> sports teams, so I don't know who you're rooting for if you, yeah, if you have that pennant. in the world? <laughs> But you get that pennant and you put it up on your wall. And the the hilarious thing about it is that it says law super big. And then it's like, yeah. what? You have to get up close to it. And then you can read San Francisco and you see yeah. on it. So silly. Um, okay. Anyway. Well, um, someone just wrote in to the show. Sorry, not to the show, to the support team. Oh. And they said, hey, do y'all still have merch? I'd love to buy some. So we have merch too. We do have merch. Um, you can go to lsat.link forward slash swag, S-W-A-G. That's one of the places. I wonder if merch works as well. It does. Yep. LSAT.link forward slash merch. It's yep. the shittiest. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is the world's <laughs> shittiest merch store because all it is is a Dropbox link and it takes you to <laughs> pictures of all of the various items. We could think about working on that if we wanted to make our merch a little bit more easily accessible. Yeah. Um, but it is yep. there. If you if you want something, you can let us know. Cool. It doesn't even say how to order or anything on this. <laughs> like, you have to read the fine print. Yeah. You have to. Oh, if you click the items, then it probably says like no, email. I don't even remember now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a store that you can't buy from. So we got that going for <laughs> got, got that going for us. Um you just yeah. have to email help at lsatdemon.com. They'll set you straight. So say, hey, this is That's what I true. want. They'll get you That's worked true. out. And we don't make any money on that. We're just charging <laughs> you what whatever the company is that makes right. it. Right. We want you us. advertising our shit. So we price all the stuff as cheap as we can possibly price it and without losing money. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's it. You please come to our free classes. Speaking of free stuff, um, we have a free proctored practice test coming up on Saturday, February 4th. Um, that will be followed by a review session with LSAT Demon teacher Marissa. Totally free. Just uh, need a free LSAT Demon account to come to our proctored test. Uh, actually, Chris might be hosting that one. I don't know. That's Marissa and Chris's jam these days to host those practice proctored tests. Um, I am doing a free class Thursday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern called Why You Don't Need an LSAT Tutor. Go to lsatdemon.com slash classes, by the way, to see all of these classes. Uh, Monday, February 13th. Oh, Ben, your class is uh, free to the world on Monday, okay. February 13th. Wow, it's a Valentine's Day gift for, for all of our, for all the world to come to Ben's amazing <laughs> LSAT class. Yeah, this is how you should spend your Valentine's Day. Wow, I'm doing reading comp too. Okay. That's the day like, before Valentine's Day, Ben. But Oh, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> I knew that. 
Uh, lsatdemon.com forward slash classes if you would like to learn more about any of those free classes. And I do hope you'll come and say hi to us. We're doing some amazing things uh, with our live Zoom classes. And uh, maybe you've had Zoom classes in the past and you haven't really uh, liked them. I think you might find that we do things in a bit of a different way. I think it feels a little more personal. We're going to be keeping an eye on the chat, responding to questions that you ask in the chat. We're going to be letting you, you know, talk to us. You can raise your hand and talk to me anytime. You can ask me any question on any topic at any of these classes. Um, and it's real good vibes, too, from all the other students. We've been able to build a real nice community at LSAT Demon. So come to those free classes and, um, yeah, maybe you'll make a friend or something. You can be LSAT famous. Please ask questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 387 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.